in Genesis, uh, the end of chapter 22, uh, and we're going to look at all of chapter 23 today. Uh, and one of the things that we find as you make your way there, one of the things that I find as I carry on my relationship with God is that his time horizon and mine are not the same. Has anybody else noticed that? He has a much longer period of time over which he operates. And on top of that, uh, his promises very often are not kept in the way that we would have imagined or that maybe we thought for ourselves would be a good idea. Anybody else seen that? I'll just tell you that uh, God called me into ministry when I was 14. I was at summer youth camp. Went to summer youth camp every year from I was 12 until I turned 18. Then I became a counselor at summer youth camp. Camp was a transformative experience in my life. And at 14, uh, they, they had a, a big presentation on going into full-time Christian service. And they, they talked about the glory of that and the excitement of being a pastor or a missionary and they asked anybody who felt that God was calling them into that to stand and be prayed for and so I went forward and I stood up and I was going to get prayed for because I was going to go overseas and be a missionary by the grace of God to share the gospel with people who had never heard it who had never even heard the name of Jesus I thought this could be the most exciting thing I've ever done uh, that changed the summer I turned 16 because the summer I turned 16, I, uh, was, I first began to show symptoms of what was later diagnosed as Crohn's disease. And uh, I, I had in my plan that somehow I was going to graduate from high school, spend a few years with Uncle Sam, uh, you know, and, and go to college. And if I was lucky, combine the two, go to West Point, be one of those guys to march in the long gray line. I thought that was going to be the coolest thing imaginable. And then I went to the recruiter and began to talk and began to, you know, he said, well, tell me about your health. Is your health good? Are you in good shape? I'm like, I'm in great shape. I can run. I can do push-ups. I can do pull-ups. I'm, 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 I'm ready to be a, uh, uh, you know, a romping, stomping Army Ranger, you know, bring it on, you know. And he said, well, well tell me all about your health. And so I told him, and he, he began, as, as I began to talk about having Crohn's disease and so forth and being on medication all the time and whatever, he began to get just this very, very serious expression on his face. And it was then that I found out that Crohn's disease is one of the things that you cannot have and be in the military, which was an adjustment to my plan, I have to tell you. And then I, I went off to college, at Christian college, which was fantastic. Some of the best years of my life were spent at Christian College, met and married my wonderful wife, and we headed off to seminary about a year and a half after we got married, and I was getting, got into classes, and we're learning all about Jesus, and we're learning um, more theology than I can remember, and we study every book in the scriptures, and we're learning original languages, and I'm thinking, man, this is going to be great. I'm going to be the most awesome missionary ever. Like, stand aside, Hudson Taylor, here we come, you know, and, uh, and then I began to talk to missions organizations, and they began to all tell me the same thing, that uh, not only does the military not take you as a Crohn's patient, but a missions organization that sends people overseas doesn't either, because you're not going to be able to serve with that. 
well, no, I'm fine, really. I'll be fine. Just give me my pills every day, and I'll be in good shape. We don't want to have to medevac you out of some continent somewhere. Well, don't worry about it. God will take care of me in the bush just as well as he does in America. Yeah, well, our insurance company feels differently. So I began to have those doors begin to close. And I began to then have to seek the Lord. God, you called me into ministry when I was 14. You've directed my path all the way through here. Um, yes, the military wasn't in the plan. Now being a missionary is not in the plan. What's going on? And as we sought the Lord together, Karen and I, we really felt the Lord leading us into the pastorate. And we have found the greatest joy of our life in the last 10 years being, being, a, being in the pastorate together and serving in the church here in the U.S., and by the grace of God, I have gotten to spend about two and a half months of my life overseas, which has been fantastic. And some of it I've even gotten to do what I fantasized about back when. I've actually been a professor in an overseas seminary, and that was cool. I spent six weeks doing that uh, in Mozambique, and it was awesome. Uh, but my plan and God's plan were not the same one. And the route that he picked to take me on was not the route that I would have lined out for myself. And what we're going to see as we look at Abraham is the same kind of thing. The way that God is going to fulfill his promises to Abraham here in this chapter, this section of scripture that we're going to look at, and the way that Abraham would have picked, and the way that God is going to have a, a certain time that he's going to have promises be fulfilled in is not going to be Abraham's timing. And yet God is going to keep his promises. Um, in fact, I, if you read your Bible, you get to Hebrews chapter 11, you read the great hall of faith. You know, the people who live by faith and are, who are called out as examples in that chapter. What you read is twice words like this. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. God had planned something better. So here we are, the end of Genesis chapter 22, beginning in verse 20. Sometime later, Abraham was told, Milcah is also a mother. She has borne sons to your brother Nahor, Uz the firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram. Kesed, Hatso, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah, and Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also had sons, uh, Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makah. Now, I know that all of you love these genealogy sections just as much as I do, because in addition to providing you with great uh, names for your children, right? I can see that you're picking out. Um, a lot of times what we will do when you're reading this, you know, the genealogy sections of Scripture, a lot of times where Bible reading plans go to die. And uh, a lot of times you just kind of whiz right by that stuff and you miss the point of why it's there. But I'll assure you that all Scripture is not only God-breathed, but it is in there Every portion of it, even this part, is there for a purpose and reason. 
And if you don't understand what that is, it doesn't let you off the hook. You still have to discern what is the purpose and reason that it's there. And it's for two reasons. Number one, it shows where Rebecca, who we're going to meet in chapter 24, comes from. Where is she? Who, who is she connected to? And any time in the book of Genesis that a new person is introduced, you always get their background, their genealogy. Where did this person come from? Where, are they, where do they come from? Uh, but there's another, I think, maybe more important reason why this is here. And it, it, it's because I think it illustrates one of the ongoing temptations in Abraham's life. Remember God's original call to Abraham? What did he say? Leave your country and your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And there I will make you a great nation and give you a great name and I will bless you. But it must have been really hard. If you read back through these chapters of Genesis that we've seen, how many genealogies are there? A lot. One of the things that it tells you is that family... And where you come from and who you're related to and what your line of descent is, is to the people to whom this is written very important. Family is everything. Now, we may not think of it that way in our kind of modern Western culture where we're lucky to all get together with our immediate family at Christmas and Thanksgiving. But in, an, in the ancient Near East and even in the modern Middle East, Family is everything. And so Abraham has been asked to do one of the most cataclysmic things he can imagine, which is to leave all of his family behind and to leave his homeland and all of that and everything connected with his father behind and go off somewhere else. And now he's at the end of his life. In fact, he and Sarah, uh, Sarah are going to die within a year of these events. And he's old. He has one legitimate son, Isaac, who is growing to adulthood but isn't married yet. They're foreigners in a foreign land. They're rich, but they're still living in a tent decades after God's call. Decades. Where's the land that God promised? Well, it's all around them. But it does, they don't own a speck of it. And in the midst of all that, he gets news from back home, from the place where he left long ago. His brother Nahor has had many children. He has eight sons by his wife and four with his concubine. He's becoming a wealthy and a prosperous man. In fact, uh, one of his descendants is Aram, which is a, a nation. It becomes a nation, the nation of Aram with a capital at Damascus, which we now call Syria today. And the longing to return home and see his family after all these years must have been really strong. But God has called Abraham to live in this land and not to go back. So what's Abraham going to do? Look at chapter 23. 
Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me if you will. I will, I will pay the price of the field, accept it from me, so I can bury my dead here. Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and waited out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field in Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the, the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Well, when we last saw Abraham, he was seated under a tamarisk tree that he had planted in Beersheba. But by this time, he has moved again. He's back to the, in the area of the city of Kiriath Arba, which the Israelites are later going to rename Hebron. It's the place where Abraham had spent a lot of time in earlier chapters when he was living under those great trees that belonged to uh, Mamre the Amorite that Abraham had a treaty with. And while he's living there again, Sarah dies at 127 years old. And her death sets up an interesting situation for Abraham. Because when someone dies in your family, what you do is you bury them at home. So where is home? going to be in Abraham's mind. Where is home? The last crown prince of the Habsburg Empire, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there was a guy named Otto von Habsburg who recently died in, in July. Uh, he was the man whose father was the last emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was dissolved because their side lost at the end of World War I. 
He died in July at the age of 98. And the Republic of Austria cannot, by law, under the Treaty of Versailles, have a state funeral for any of their former royals. But nevertheless, they had a funeral, and his funeral was quite similar to a state funeral, even though it was not officially labeled such. And he was buried in the Capuchin Monastery near St. Stephen's Cathedral, Steffensdome. I have been there. It is magnificent. If you ever get to see it, it is absolutely worth seeing. And you can go to the Steffensplatz, uh, the St. Stephen's uh, Plaza that's in front of it, and stand there and look at this majestic building. And there's a, there's a little monastery off to the side of it, and underneath that is the family crypt of the Habsburgs, one of the longest-serving royal families in Europe. And this guy recently died, and his body is buried underneath that monastery. But his heart is extracted and buried in Hungary, according to tradition. Now, that is weird. But why do they do it that way? Because he is being buried at home. And if you maybe were not from this area, I don't know, you know, uh, I know this is true if you were born in Texas and you grew up there, that you get, you die in Illinois, you have your body shipped to Texas, okay? You're going home, right? Um, uh, I, I don't know if it's the same if you're from Illinois, you know, maybe you want to get buried anywhere else. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, uh, in any case, you want to get buried at home, right? And the same thing is true with Abraham and his wife. So where is home? Is it back with Abraham's family whom he has just heard from? Or is it in the land? Abraham makes his decision. God has given me this land, and this land is going to be home. And I don't own any of it yet, so I'm going to buy some. I'm just going to get a burial plot initially. But at this moment, Abraham doesn't have any land, and he's going to have to buy some, and he's an alien, which means he does not have the same rights as people who are citizens of that area where he's living. And a lot of times in foreign countries, especially, it's very, it's very difficult to buy land as a foreigner because people are concerned that if they sell enough land to foreigners, that eventually they'll amass power and your culture will then change and you will be a minority in your own country. And that will be bad in the eyes of most people. And so it's very difficult in a lot of places outside the U.S. to buy land as a foreigner pretty easy around here relatively speaking and so abraham has to go and and figure out how to work a land deal in a place that's not necessarily open to him being a landowner but nevertheless abraham goes down to the city gate this little area in between the, the, the two doors of the city, the inner and the outer door, there's a little courtyard in between there, and that's where all the prominent men of the city would be, and they would be conducting business and legal transactions there. And so Abraham goes there, 
And he says, he says, I'm an alien and a stranger here. Sell me some property for a burial plot. Well, now, culturally, the Hittites don't want to be seen as taking advantage of a grieving man. And so they come back with, well, you're a mighty prince. You can have any tomb you want. Pick a tomb, any tomb. None of us will refuse you. But they don't really mean that. This is Middle Eastern politeness. This is the opening of the negotiation over what tomb we're going to have and how much it's going to be. And Abraham doesn't want his wife to be buried in a Canaanite tomb on top of that. Because being buried in the tombs of these Canaanites is a small step for being assimilated into being a Canaanite. And Abraham is not a Canaanite. He does not want to be buried like one or have his wife buried like one. And you don't want to lose your distinctiveness as the chosen people of God. He wants land of his own, even if it's just a cave for a burial plot. So he gets more specific. And because he's an alien and a stranger, he, he goes about it in a roundabout way. And he says, well, speak to a certain man of the city. Speak to Ephron on my behalf. And he's putting himself in a very humble position, even though he is probably wealthier than Ephron is in terms of his assets. He says, well, if you would be so kind as to speak to Ephron for me. And this kind of has a middle school girl feel to it, you know. Would you talk to so-and-so to talk to so-and-so? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know what I mean? And, uh, but, it's, but the reason is, is that culturally he's trying to uh, do the appropriate thing. And he's recognizing Ephron, in a sense, as culturally superior to him. But Ephron is sitting right there and can hear <laughs> Abraham make his request. And so Ephron answers, and again, you can't be seen... You, can't, you can be predatory, but you can't be seen to be predatory uh, with a grieving husband. And so Ephron says, no, my Lord, I, I give it to you. I give it to you, both the field and the cave. Um, now, remember, Abraham only asked about the cave. Ephron says, I give it to you, both the field and the cave. In other words, subtext, you can have the cave, but only if you have the field with it. And the reason is, is that there are feudal obligations to the Lord of the city that come along with the field in whole, which do not come with just a little portion of it. And he says, if I'm going to be responsible still, I don't want to still be responsible for all that stuff and taxes and whatever else, uh, as if I own the whole thing, you're going to have to buy the whole thing if you want it. And so, he, so finally, they get around to a price. And Abraham says, I'll pay the price. This is verse 13. I'll pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. And then in verse 14, you get politeness masking a just exorbitant demand. He says, no, no, my Lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me, particularly the money's going into my pocket? Uh, bury your dead. 
Okay, let me put that in perspective. 400 shekels of silver, a shekel is a weight. If you were a common laborer, you got paid six to eight shekels of silver per year in Abraham's day. So this is 50 years wages for this field. It's a burial plot. Okay. Most people, when their loved one dies, do not have to take out a loan or something to put a headstone on. So he is really taking advantage of the situation. But he's saying, oh, but on the surface, there's this, oh, it's worth 400 shekels. But what is that? I mean, that's really a, such a small number. It's, a, it's robbery. Abraham is fixing to get robbed right here. And so Abraham, he says, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms, and he weighs out for him 400 shekels. And he does so, so that Ephron and everybody sitting there, he does it in front of everybody, so that no one can ever come back and say, Abraham came in and stole this land. And Abraham takes a portion of the blessing that God has given him materially, and he buys it. It's the first chunk of all of the land that God has promised. And he gains a permanent place for himself and for his family after him. Abraham's going to be buried there. Sarah's going to be buried there. Isaac's going to be buried there. Rebecca's going to be buried there. Jacob's going to be buried there. Leah's going to be buried there. This is going to become the family tomb. And he gets his first chunk of the promised land. And it's not exactly in the way that God had said. Remember, God had said, I'm going to give you all of this land. Walk through it. And every place the sole of your foot touches will belong to you. But at the end of his life, Sarah dies at 127. He's Abraham's 10 years older. We're going to get to his death when we, after we take a break from this. We'll pick back up and we'll see Abraham's death. He dies at 137. So he dies a few months probably after this event. And at the end of his life, the only piece of property that he owns is this little field and this cave where his wife is buried. And he passes on all of his stuff to his son, who is the only child that he has out of all of the descendants that God promised. He has Isaac. Now, coming to the end of this story, you might think that this has very little to do with us. Because after all, just reading on the face of it, you've got a genealogy followed by a real estate transaction. <laughs> okay. And... I think what, I've, what I hope, though, that you can see is that below the surface, there are some things for us that are here as well. And I just want to point out just one for us to think through together as we close. Uh, as I read the scriptures, I think that Abraham must have been sorely tempted to look back over his life and look back on all that he had given up. And look back toward family and the comforts of the place that he had left. I mean, think about this. My, my 
my dear bride and I, a few years ago, went down to the Lake of the Ozarks with our family. And it was that summer where you only had one hot week. That was the week we were there. And we were in a tent. And it was 97 degrees, I think. Um, and something, they had had flooding there at the campground where we were staying. And so you could not get into the water because apparently they had had sewage runoff go into the water and so forth, and so you could not get in. And we sweltered for two days in that tent. Uh, We went to caves. We did everything we could to keep cool, and it was hot. And we took it for two days, and then we packed up our junk and went home. (laughs) We said, enough of this, right? And then we... Then we packed up some different stuff and went to my mom's and swam in their pond. (laughs) Okay, why? We're going to go home to where we can get cool, where life is comfortable. You're an old man married to an old lady, and you have been living in a tent for 50 years. In a tent, in the desert, in the hot yucky, sweaty desert for 50 years. And you get word from your family. And all of a sudden, that desire, what am I doing here, would be very normal. God promised me all this stuff, but all I've got is one kid and a bunch of sheep and some money. I got no land. Yeah, I've been blessed, but I'm living in a tent. In a tent. I'm old. Maybe it's time for me to go home. If you were in Abraham's shoes, you'd be forgiven for wondering if God is really going to keep his promises. Because so far, from a human perspective, it doesn't look all that promising, honestly. He has great wealth, he has one son, but he's not a mighty nation, and the only land he owns is cave with a bur- uh, in a, for a burial plot and a field next to it. But Abraham has learned to this point something very significant in his relationship with God, and particular, I think, in the events on Mount Moriah that we looked at last week. He has learned that God's promises outlast our earthly lives. Last week we saw that God had promised him that Isaac was going to be the promised chosen son through whom God's blessing was going to come. And then he also was told, take this boy and kill him. How's that going to work? Well, God's promises are going to have to outlast Isaac's earthly life or Isaac is going to have to get a second one after the death. And Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. God is not the God of this life only. He's the God who is sovereign over life and death. He's the God who can bring new life. Abraham is learning these things. And so Abraham buys this burial plot. 
establishing for himself and his descendants in faith a new homeland, knowing that God is going to continue to be faithful not only to him, but also to his descendants, even after Abraham is dead and buried. Hebrews says it, Hebrews 11 says it this way, chapter 11. All these were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. They had been thinking of the country they had left. They would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, Abraham was aware that God's promises were going to outlast his earthly life, that he wasn't going to live to see a great nation be established from his descendants, but that it was still going to happen, that he wasn't going to live to see all of the blessing that God had prepared, but it was going to happen. And that the God who says, I am your God, would continue to be his God even after death. Remember what Jesus said when he was questioned about the resurrection? He said, have you never read, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Why does he say that? Because God is the God who raises the dead and whose promises continue to be fulfilled even after this earthly life is over. A lot of us, if we were asked, where is home, we would give people directions to our house or our apartment or maybe our tent. But here's the reality that this story points out, that we are not home yet. But someday we will be home and God will still be our God, and all of his promises will be there fulfilled. Let me ask you, just as one last thing here as we close. Have you had some promises from God that you haven't worked out quite like you thought? Some things that he called you into that you thought, well, I'm going to do this and be obedient to God, and he's going to greatly bless because he has promised that he will bless obedience to him and so forth. A lot of times we look at that and we go, well, gosh, I just don't see how this is working out for me. I don't see how God is working all things together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. I don't see it. You know what? Not home yet. And one day we will be home. And when we are home, finally, we will have our dwelling in the city that God has prepared for those who live by faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that though you always are faithful to your word, though you always... Keep your promises. 
regardless of our obedience or lack thereof, you are faithful. Father, we thank you that there is coming a day when all your promises will be revealed to be answered and fulfilled and kept and honored. Father, we get discouraged sometimes here in this life as we look around and we do not see everything subject to Jesus, as Paul said. But we see Jesus and we look to him knowing that you who were faithful to him will be faithful also to us and that one day we will have our full inheritance in the kingdom of God's dear son. And Father, we pray that we would continue to trust you, continue to walk by faith, continue though we have not received everything that was promised. See it and welcome it from a distance. Longing for a country of our own place you have prepared for us and father we thank you for your great grace which gives us all these things according to your purpose and plan and timing and by the power of your spirit and we pray in jesus name amen